You're listening to Campfire Conversations, brought to you by Three Rivers Land Trust, committed to conservation. It is April Fool's Day, and we are back on the air. Um, Got a couple of guests with us today, and a couple of uh, things to catch up on. One thing that we left kind of hanging uh, a couple what Golly, four or five three, yeah three or four at least episodes ago was we talked about we were talking about trout and we were talking about natives versus invasives versus non-native invasives and Sam asked the question to me about is there any non-natives that aren't invasive and I told him I answered yes but for some reason I couldn't couldn't come up with any off the top of my head, but as soon as we finished the episode, I thought of, I thought of several. We've been coming up with a list uh, ever since. And since then, yeah. I've been running a tally. Yeah. Um, the first one I thought of was ringneck pheasant. Um, it's not an invasive. It's it's not. It's non-native, but it's not invasive. It's not out-competing anything. Yeah. Right, it's not out-competing anything. Same with Hungarian partridge. Hungarian partridge was another one. Um, we, we thought of several. So, tar. Uh, Himalayan tar, which yeah. is something that folks enjoy. Um, yeah. Oryx, um, you know, down in South Texas, you know, megafauna. Yeah. Um, that we were trying to think of, more or less. Um, another one that I thought of this past week was the honeybee. Um, and I thought about that, and we'll probably run another episode with a, with a couple of expert beekeepers on bees. I've got an opinion on the honeybee, um, and I also think that there's a chance that when the honeybee was imported that there was maybe a native honeybee that yeah, I was about got to say, displaced. You, uh-huh, I, I'm, um, I'm curious because I think they may be an invasive. But we'll find it. We'll talk Well, they're definitely necessary today. Yeah, yeah but, oh, for but sure. But we'll get to it. And if you listen, you hear in the background, if you don't like that noise, then you're just an awful person. Because we've got <laughs> a special guest. We've got Hannah with us today. and Hannah Dollar. Hannah Dollar is the daughter of Dr. Luke Dollar. Hannah's going to be joining us and keeping us company. She's two years old, and she's an expert on everything wild. And we youngest guest we've ever had. Youngest guest we've ever had, so we're excited to have her. That's um, right. And we're also excited to have you, Dr. Dollar. Um, thanks, for, thanks for coming in and joining us. I'm going to give you a little bit of an introduction, um, and it, it probably won't correct me when I say something wrong, okay? <laughs> but Dr. Dollar, um, I got to know you through your work at Catawba College, um, Knew, knew you a little bit before that when you were working at Pfeiffer. Um, and uh, Mikey, of course, my wife, she knew you. Um, but Dr. Dollar has done some interesting work, um, more or less, I'm going to call it big cat work, because everybody should understand when I say big cats, I'm referring to, you know, the things that can eat you. Um, so it's super cool. And it's things Americans like to talk about mm-hmm. are booze, snakes, and big cats. Cars. Cars. That's that's what that's what Americans like to talk about. <laughs> I feel like if you bring up any of those topics, there's going to be a long conversation around them. I seem to recall a David Allen Coe song, something about that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. So so we're going to talk we're going to talk big cats today. We're going to talk a lot of things, but we're going to talk big cats and some of the research that Dr. Dollar has done, and then we're gonna we're gonna roll right into what we're doing with Catawba and the developments there, but. Uh, with that said, uh, I'd love to hear a little bit of your background, introduce yourself, and let the listener know. Sure, Cody and Sam, it's a pleasure to be here with you guys. Um, I do three main things. 
first and foremost, I'm a professor. Uh, I enjoy time in the classroom and helping to shape this next generation of stewards of our planet. Uh, I'm the chair of the Department of Environment and Sustainability at Catawba. I'm also an adjunct professor at Duke. Uh, and what the other two things I do uh, are all about is driving more information and experiences into the first one. The other two things I do is uh, I run research conservation and development programs in, in Madagascar. Uh, most of that surrounds an animal called the fusa, which is not a big cat, but it is Madagascar's largest endemic predator. It looks sort of like if you could imagine a, a cougar crossed with a mongoose, sort of, sort of a low-slung you know, six foot long from the tip of the nose to the tip of the tail, more than half of that's tail, knee-high cougar. That's a lot what a fusa would look like. And uh, first went to Madagascar 25 years ago in, in 1994 and uh, uh, was there to be a primatologist. And the lemur I was there to study was eaten by this predator I'd never heard of before. Literally something ate my homework. That's wild. And uh, that was a fusa. And so... Uh, summer after I graduated from undergrad in 95, I went to uh, Indonesia to work with orangutans with a professor from there. And the coolest thing that happened to me, although I was, you know, documenting orangutans every single day in the swamps of North Sumatra, coolest thing to happen to me was I, I, I came, had a pretty close encounter with a clouded leopard. Wow. And, and uh, I said, all right, I'm switching from primates to carnivores. Uh-huh. And so almost two years to the day that I lost that uh, study animal in Madagascar, to Afusa, I managed to trap one for the first time, uh, and and really, uh, that sort of uh, set me off on my career for research and conservation. Um, originally, I was just going to be a scientist. I'm going to go out. I'm going to collect data. Uh-huh. I'm going to write these papers, and I'm going to expand our knowledge. Well, that first Fusa that we trapped in Radio Collard in the rainforest of Madagascar, there, um, two weeks later, walked into a village and got killed. And I started engaging with the local people. Why did this happen? Uh, and they said, well, you know, we have problems with, with, with rats and pigs mostly because 75% of the population there are subsistence farmers. They grow rice to yep. to survive. That's all they do. Um, and I said, well, why'd you kill the food? I said, well, we were afraid of it, and we were afraid it might steal our chickens. Put a pin in that note, human-wildlife conflict mm-hmm. is, is very much a real thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so my first study animal ever ended up getting killed by local people. Uh, so that was a pretty quick lesson that I was going to have to do as much conservation work as I was going to do research if I didn't want to know a lot about a potentially extinct species by the end of my career. That lesson goes right back into the classroom and also plays into the, the, the third thing I do, which, which uh, is uh, working with National Geographic. Uh, now with Geographic, I'll, I'll help lead travel expeditions that they do. I'll, I'll, I'll give talks for uh, them and National Geographic Learnings Engage, the, the textbook company, uh, that's a part of National Geographic and has partnership with them as well to go and visit schools and, and, and spoke to, speak to speak to different schools and whatnot. But all of it is about communicating back into the next generation, whether it be here in the States, whether it be in, in Africa, uh, whether it be in Madagascar, um, on better ways to coexist. Uh, from 2009 until uh, 2017, I worked with National Geographic's Big Cats Initiative. Um, and just as the initiative was, was, was being launched as a concept, uh, I'd become an explorer back in 2007 through a, a program called their Emerging Explorers Program. Pretty funny story. Got a phone call um, it's from a man named Lenny Williams. said, congratulations, we're naming you a National Geographic Explorer. I, of course, thought it was a prank call and hung up. Um, 
hung up on him. <laughs> that, 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 was, that was a little embarrassing to find out later that, that it was real, and that was in 2007, which began a dialogue with, with the society, you know, the, the, this, this organization that is nothing short of iconic in the eyes of almost everyone. Um, has incredible reach and sure. was fundamental in, in shaping my own enthusiasm and, and love of the outdoors. And, and a lot of people. Yeah. Um, and uh, was was lucky enough to, to work with them on the Big Cats Initiative from 2009 to 2017, uh, right before I took this position as chair of the Department of Environment and Sustainability at Catawba. And um, I've, I've, uh, I've led a lucky life. Well, I, I want to talk about a couple of things. You, uh, you, we were talking before before the show a little bit about your uh, your background in in big cats, and I want to come back to continental U.S. for yes. a minute. Let's talk a little bit about the Florida Panther. Let's let's do it. It's a topic that I'm I'm super interested in, and I know you've got some experience in it. We've talked a little bit about it on the show. Um, Talk a little bit about your work with the Florida Panther. Sure. My master's uh, thesis was actually titled The Genetic Rescue of the Florida Panther. Uh, What happened was in uh, the early 2000s, the lab of my graduate professor at the time inherited the entirety of the Florida Panther data set from a man named Sonny Bass down in the Everglades. He was one of the chief scientists in the Everglades, Sonny was, and he'd been working with... um, uh, my master's advisor, a man named Stuart Pym, for a very long time. Stuart uh, had worked on the Cape Sable Seaside Sparrow for, for quite some time. And conservation work around the panther had been ongoing for decades. Uh, but a lot of it was somewhat siloed, even though geographically some of the, the groups that were working with panthers may have been dozens of miles apart. Uh, there had not yet been a, a full-on aggregation of what was going on. With, with the panthers and trying to address their, their, their conservation issues. And so Sonny asked our lab uh, to, to help aggregate all of that. And so that launched me on a two-year process of assembling literally thousands, if not tens of thousands of pages of independent reports, data, uh, sightings, which was, was all largely being government-funded but in all these different places and all these different programs uh, to help examine what was going on there and whether it had been successful or not. You know, by the 80s, we were down to maybe a couple of dozen panthers in South Florida. And the, the ambitious and audacious idea to help address that, because we knew already through the work of you know, great geneticists and conservationists that uh, we had reached a point where we were in dire straits and right. the panthers were largely walking dead. Right. Uh, all of these bad genes that all of us carry but get masked because they're recessive, the population had gotten so low that we couldn't, they couldn't have um, not expressed some of these that's, really that's dangerous things. That's a good way to put it. Exactly. Um, things like cryptorchidism, so, so you know, as, as the males were, were developing and growing, you know, a testicle or two wouldn't mm-hmm. descend or their, or their testicular issues. Other things that, you know, may or may not have been, you know, damaging to their survival like kinked tails and, and cow licks in their fur and things like that that, that usually just get masked. They're, mm-hmm. they're, they're there in, in, in the deeps of the gene pool, but if the gene, gene pool is deep enough, they stay at the yeah, bottom. they're always recessive. Yeah. Right. Um, but they were to the point that 
everyone we were seeing was showing these characteristics, which is not beneficial, particularly mm -hmm. with things like cryptorchidism, et cetera, uh, to sustaining the population much longer. So an idea was hatched to bring in a number of female cougars from Texas. Now, a Florida panther is the same species as uh, a cougar in Texas, a mountain lion in California, yeah, they're a, a all puma, puma in Montana. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all the same species, just different subspecies. Right. Um, and a number of these females that were introduced into South Florida did successfully breed with, quote-unquote, purebred Florida panther males. Now, remember that this population was completely contiguous in the not-too-distant past. Right, less so, than 100 years ago. Yeah, so, so you've got this remnant population in South Florida that, you know, if they were keeping up with their family tree, they would probably still remember Uncle So-and-so from Texas. So we're not that far removed. Um, and it was interesting to see what had happened. Now, there wasn't a panther that we knew about that wasn't collared and, 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 and tracked by these amazing biologists in, in, in South Florida. The, the, uh, the quality of work, the quality of the field work, the quality of the, the, the reporting and analyses that were being done was fantastic. But our job was to take this and aggregate it. Um, and so we, we, we took it under advisement and... and, and uh, I was literally in Madagascar working on my PhD at the same time, analyzing Florida panther data for, wow. for years on end. Um, and what happened was a few of these females were successful in breeding with, 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 panth with Florida males. And their male, quote-unquote, hybridized offspring, disappointingly, died at the same, if not higher, rates than the quote-unquote purebred Florida mm -hmm. panther males. But we all know boys are dumb. Right. Oh, yeah. You know, particularly when we, we, we start to, 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 to feel our oats and try to spread out there in the world. They're literally and out tomcatting around. Exactly. <laughs> and, uh, and, they, and, and, and they died at, at, at uh, the same, if not higher, rates. So this was a little worrisome and, 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 and sure, disappointing as, as we're going through these analyses. And then we got to looking at what was happening with the outcrossed females. Mm -hmm. So the hybrid female, you know, F1, F2, F3, you know, subsequent generations. They survived very well. Which further reinforces the, the concept that uh, um, it's about the survival of the females in populations 100%. and the health of the females in populations that, that make a difference. Um, some of the latest reports I've, uh, 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 I've seen, um, and, and I think the numbers may be a little bit low, uh, but regardless whether it's 130 or 200 panthers in South Florida and all of Florida now, uh, we're looking at what's likely up to an order of magnitude more panthers than we realistically had walking around before. Sure, mm -hmm. which is great. It's a, yeah. it's a success. I got a question. Is there bringing these big cats, bringing these... Uh, mountain lions, cougars, pumas, whatever you want to call them, from Texas to Florida. That's a pretty significant habitat change. Was there any concerns, or you may know this, you may not, or trouble with them adapting to their new home? Or I'm I'm not aware that there were any grave problems in mm -hmm. them them adapting to the areas. Um, you know, Texas is is more diverse than we think it sure. is in a lot of totally. its habitats, and uh, and Florida is more diverse in a lot of its habitats than than, than we think. And and one thing we know about. You know, good top predators is they tend to be pretty adaptable unless they're super specialists they tend to be pretty adaptable as well and so it's, it wasn't all of the females that successfully bred yeah. but enough of them did that it, sure. that made a difference nice that brings up brings up a good point sam of these these big cats these cougars 
being able to adapt to various habitats, you know, you get the occasional report of a of a puma in an extirpated state where they're not listed as a game species, they're not listed as a as a species on the SGN. They're just not not there. Yeah. Um, North Carolina being one of those. Sure. Um, not to say that there couldn't be one. Yeah. It's just they're not listed there. Mm-hmm. Um, but they are adaptable, and, and like we we're talking about those toms, they do range. Um, as, as you well know uh, from tracking them, they they range deep and heavy. Sure. And so the chance that you could see one is there. Is it likely? Probably not. Um, it's more likely to get run over on I forty than for you to see it in your backyard. Yeah. Yeah. Inter- interesting fact. Uh, more Florida panthers were lost to roadkill last year than existed in Florida 30 years ago. Oh, that's, nah, a, that's, that's a, a good cool stat. fact. That's crazy. Yeah. Well, that's a huge success, though. That's, that's a win. What's the, uh, what's the number right now? Um, National Wildlife Federation, I just saw a number that put out 130 to 140. Um, I was down in Florida with 20 of our Catawba students uh, at the beginning of last month and was talking to other f- folks, and, and, and the idea is the number's probably a bit higher than that. Sure. Um, yeah, the, the, there have been these push pushes northward, which is fantastic to see. And, and one of, the, one of the, the, the greatest things that we've seen emerge with panthers and people, uh, particularly recently, is how uh, the cowboys uh, in central Florida are engaging on a new level because these are the guys with the big thousands of acre ranches Mm -hmm. that have some of the best habitats that are there and are working not only to to coexist with them in cooperation with with government and NGOs, but how these guys are the keys to the success of the the expansion and and the sustainability of the population now. Because a lot of South Florida is is designated protected area, but you start Mm -hmm. going north, and some of your big, most wonderful undeveloped habitat patches is private land, and it's large tracts of private land. Without that, the panther doesn't continue to to succeed and expand and thrive. Uh, And so, you know, hats off to cowboys in Florida. Uh, the ranchers in Florida, the farmers in Florida, who are, um, you know, actively engaging with conservationists and land managers to uh, try to make some of that space available to share, because you know, the, the natural instincts for conflict um, anyone can understand. Yeah, you know, right. this this is you know not in my backyard. This is a threat to my livelihood, et cetera. And it's amazing whether it's the Florida panther or the Fusa in Madagascar. Lions in Africa, tigers in, in, in India, you know, any of these things, you know, the, the, the key to the survival of these magnificent top predators is coexistence with people. And with, with, with the Big Cats Initiative, um, you know, throughout Africa and, and, and other parts of the world as well, uh, for example, the leading cause of Lion loss is retaliatory killing as a result mm-hmm. of lost livestock. Right. No, no question. 
um, you know, for, for, for years and years there's been this idea of compensation. And, and that works in places where there's lots of infrastructure, things are well organized, but it's still somewhat odinsome for, that's right, Hannah. This is this is this is Hannah you're hearing in the background. Catawba <laughs> College class of twenty forty. She's, she's tying her daddy to the chair. <laughs> with a, the listeners, with the a listeners thought head. that was me. Well, <laughs> she, she's got me wrapped around her finger anyway. Oh. But uh, um, yeah, coexistence is the key. Human wildlife conflict is is the leading direct cause of, of mortality of a lot of these top predators, uh, whether it's whether it's you know preemptory or retaliatory. And uh, one of the things that um, the Big Cats Initiative uh, with National Geographic was able to do is to support a lot of biologists in the field, whether it be in Tanzania or Kenya or Zambia or elsewhere, uh, that were able to help herders better protect their stocks and work directly with communities at their own development and economic development as well um, in the interest of coexistence to help keep these predators there, and it, and it was it, it was an amazing thing to, to be lucky enough to be a part of. Yeah, I have I mean a tie into my own um, background with that exact topic was when I worked in Arizona. Um, there was two, and I've spoken about this briefly on the podcast before, but there was two um, known jaguars that had migrated north um, from Mexico to the United States. One being El Jefe. Um, who I think is still alive and hasn't been seen for a couple years, as as far as I know. And then there was another male that had crossed, younger male that had crossed across. And in a, in the United States, uh, endangered species and big cats are revered, and um, there's a lot of cooperation, like you were saying, uh, and organizations and people that really care about these cats. But on the other side of the border, that cat, that second cat, was killed by a rancher in Mexico six months ago. Yeah, not <laughs> long ago, um, because. It was affecting his livelihood, uh, and is that can you get mad at that person? Um, you know, it's that's a tough, that's a tough thing to tell somebody. You're, you know, this is affecting your livelihood, and you can't kill it. And that's a tough conflict, and it's something that doesn't have strict borders like the between countries. And that's a that's a tough uh, obstacle to overcome, a hurdle to overcome. Yeah. For sure. You know, while, while it's certainly understandable to be you know, disappointed when an outcome like that occurs, to immediately vilify the person who is perhaps living at a subsistence level, right. doing what they feel they need to do to survive to provide for their young ones and their families, that's a really hard condemnation to, to be able to justify without fully walking a mile in their shoes as well. Yeah, um, and and yeah, that's a similar issue even, even in Africa. You've, you've a billion plus people, many of whom are herders and have been, you know, World famous cultural herders mm-hmm. for 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 you know generations upon generations, if not century, if not millennia, and it is on those of you know a conservation mindset to understand that uh, it's not that one species has more value than another in that in that context, but that all species have value in that context and have a right to to, to place, and it is up to us to seek solutions for coexistence. Uh, you know that's part of what uh, we try to engender in, 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 in our students at Catawba in the Department of Environment and Sustainability. That you know, there's not always a right and a wrong answer. Uh, it's it's often about finding the lesser of multiple evils or the greatest win for all parties. Right. Yeah. Well, for the sake of time, because Dr. Dollar has to go. Hold on. Uh, I got two. I got two things. I'll right. pull it right around. All right. 
Um, you mentioned earlier the the Cowboys in Florida and their role in enhancing habitat and protecting the, the cougar, mm-hmm. um, the Florida panther. That that's true. That rings true for most megafauna, predatory megafauna, especially. They have to have these large contiguous blocks of land. Like in North Carolina, the black bear. There's a reason that there aren't that many black bears in the Piedmont because there's not that much contiguous, undeveloped property. Yeah. Um, but there is in the mountains. You've got Pisgah. You've got Nantahala. You've got all these undeveloped national forests. You've got the Croatan. Same to the coast. Yeah. On the coast. Mm-hmm. Um, so these bears, they just they don't really mix with folks. Same with the big cat. Um, so it's important to, to remember that when you're thinking of how to protect these these animals. Habitat's key. Um, sure. It's, it's crucial. And you were also you were getting so specific as finding out that they needed their genetic pool was not as large as it needed to be. And so with those two things, you're able to enhance the population. Um, so that was one thing I wanted to touch on. Well, if thing, I can expand on yeah, that. Yeah, go ahead. You know, it's, it's, not, just, it's not just the, the source pieces of land. It's the connectivity exactly. between the patches. Yeah. So we may not need to protect 30% of the Piedmont. Right. But if we can protect the 10% of the Piedmont that allows for an understandable and followable path of connectivity between the larger patches, we have done not as much but a substantial amount for those populations in those patches as if we had created an entire swath mm-hmm. of major protected area space between patches. Yeah. You know, co- connectivity, finding critical points of, 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 of habitat that allow for stopovers and refugia uh, is, is, is unbelievably important. That's what you guys do. Yep, that's our, uh, you know, that's, our job. That's, 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 the, that's the land trust's mission, and, and it's, it's probably one of the most cost-effective and overall absolutely effective ways to, to conserve not only land but wildlife for the future. Exactly. My whole reason for getting into the game, well, interesting. Well, Sam, we're gonna have to put him on staff, man. That was, <laughs> That's that it. Well we'll, we'll roll right into your current. Yeah, current we, I so want to. I want to get you back. Sure. Doctor Dollar's got some classes to teach, and I don't want to keep him from his real job. <laughs> My wildlife class yeah. starts in about twenty-five so, minutes, but so, luckily we're so we're, we're ten minutes away, so that right. works. So we're we're good. Yeah, we're we're neighbors with Catawba. So talk talk about Catawba. What's going on now? Um, what changes you foresee, and and just where you're going with the college? Oh, wow. Uh, I'm in my second year of Catawba, and I couldn't be more delighted or excited about any professional pursuit I've ever had. Um, Which is a lot to say, coming from a yeah, guy who's yeah. been Fusa in Madagascar. When, when the opportunity to, 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 to help grow this new program emerged, I jumped on it. Uh, I'd been looking over the fence at Catawba for, <laughs> for, for quite a while, and uh, every expectation or aspiration I had for Catawba has been met. The department is amazing. Uh, we've got a diverse number of concentrations already for, for, for students. Concentrations in environmental science, what you would consider to be traditional environmental science, natural resource management, environmental education, and sustainable planning and leadership. The sustainable planning and leadership concentration is particularly cool because it requires a minor or a second major as a part of the core requirement or as a part of the core requirements for the concentration to further the interdisciplinarity of environment and sustainability. Because if there's something we know, it's that interdisciplinarity is the key to a sustainable future. Right. Um, uh, we are actually tomorrow 
have the GIS, Geographic Information Systems Minor, uh, proposal that goes before the faculty. Uh, when I walked in the door, that was my academic first priority to, to grow GIS. Mm-hmm. I mean, you guys know how useful GIS I, is. I use it daily, um, not only for just making maps, which is the basic root of GIS, but so much data you can track through the attribute tables. And so that that's why that's why it's absolutely crucial in natural resources that you use it. But not just natural resources. Engineers are using it. Everybody's using it. So if you if you, if you're not up to date, and I'm by no means an expert, but it's definitely something that I was learning in college, and it's definitely well changed around since then. But. From county real estate records to the Garmin you used to get to go where you're going, the navigation right. system you used to get where you're going, GIS is, is, is at the root of that. Uh, when I was an undergrad, if you could write computer code, if you could write software, you were one of these wizards that could black box and be guaranteed <laughs> sure, a solid uh-huh. job. Yeah. Now that's GIS. It is. Yeah. And that's that's why we're, we're growing that program. And I'm pleased to say that Andrew Jacobson, who's uh, just completed his postdoc with National Geographic doing the GIS analyses as a part of a team for the last all places work that they're doing right now globally uh, is joining the faculty in the fall. Awesome. Uh, and so that'll put three explorers at, uh, at, at Catawba, which is pretty fantastic. Uh, you guys will have the students all over the world. <laughs> yeah. Not you don't already because you do. It'll be, fan, fa- it'll be a fantastic, uh, fantastic thing. But, you know, in it, that's right. You know. In addition to that, um, interdisciplinarity is important. And Catawba's got a number of great programs in business, theater arts, music, mm-hmm. politics, you, you, you name it. There are strong programs all around. And so building bridges to, to further bolster the strength of what we're offering, um, you know, coming, coming in the future we're going to see um, uh, an expansion of what we've, we've taught this semester as a topics class in ecopreneurship. Yeah, we were talking about that term earlier. Say that, say that again so everybody catches it right quick. Ecopreneurship. So you, 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 your mind may have initially thought I said entrepreneurship. But this is a blend of, of uh, uh, the entrepreneurship work in the business departments at Catawba uh, and the Department of Environment and Sustainability to blend these things because uh, one of the most important ways we can become stewards and better stewards for next generations is not only through the, the, the direct approach into being out there, but also to have the mindset of sustainability pre-existing in the business community and the actors of, of those who are driving businesses in the future as well, and also driving you know, sustainable businesses mm-hmm. in the future too. Uh, we've also just hired that we'll be starting also in the fall a phenomenal professor of environmental policy and advocacy. She's coming from Colorado. Uh, her name is Mercedes, Mercedes Quesada Embiid. Also heck of a name, uh, Yeah, too. Mercedes <laughs> Quesada Embiid, uh, and she's an absolute rock star. Uh, she, she came and interviewed, uh, and uh, the, the students were, were simultaneously impressed, wowed, and just delighted at the possibility that, that we may get her as a, as a environmental policy and advocacy professor. Yeah. And so we expect to, to grow those offerings on the environmental law side in the future as well. All, that was one of my favorite courses. In, and I, I'm a hands-on wildlife management techniques guy, but one of my favorite curriculums that I took in college was wildlife policy and law. So, mm-hmm. well, so I mean, and for somebody who graduated with an environmental degree not too long ago, um, your interdisciplinary uh, 
what you just touched on, I think is so important because I don't think I fully understand the breadth of jobs that were out there after school. And I'm just so impressed with Catawba and the professors that I've met at preparing their students for um, all the options that are out there. When I kind of, when I graduated, I just started looking and, and realized how broad the potential jobs were and all that was out there. So for a young listener who may be interested in going and, and getting a degree in something um, environmental related or a parent of a student, um, one, the environmental field is great and there's tons of jobs. And then two, Catawba is a wonderful place to send them. Yeah, it, it is. The department's growing by leaps and bounds, but we're staying in proportion to maintain the, the small school feel that we've got. I just had six of our students, you know, what professor would get asked to go to a conference and say, I'll come, but I need to bring six students who are going to run their own breakout sessions. Which is awesome. Yeah. Uh, these six students just ran breakout sessions at a conference at the North Carolina Center for the Advancement of Teaching uh, this past Friday. And these six students were, were there to, to show teachers and guidance counselors all the different pathways that got them to the Department of Environment and Sustainability and then all the directions they're going in. And of those six students, one is going to be an environmental lawyer, one is going to be a glaciologist, one is going to be a wildlife biologist, one is going into waste management. Uh, (laughs) The the list goes on and on and on in terms of the diversity of directions that that, that students can take. You know, traditionally we think, oh, you're going to college, you're going to be pre-med, pre-business, pre-law, etc. Well, this is... An additional highly interdisciplinary uh, major that allows students to go into government, NGOs, private sector, graduate school, what have you, um, that as we put more and more tools in their toolkit, not only how to go out and trap stuff, but also how to use GIS, how to negotiate a contract how to testify before Congress on an environmental issue, you know, the, the, the full spectrum, how to be an advocate in the community for or against certain policies, um, but do it all respectfully uh, is, mm, is, an, is, is an important thing. You know, one of the things I love the most about our department is the level of camaraderie, not only between the faculty and not only within the student body, but between the student body and the faculty. And there's this default position of uh, respect, humility, and confidence mm-hmm. that aren't in conflict with one another at all around this idea, this uniform idea of being better stewards of our, uh, of our planet for this generation and the next generation and the next generation that really is at the crux of everything we do. Another thing I'm impressed with is the staff and the students' um, interactions with the community as well. I mean, we know so many of your staff members. We've met many of your students. Yeah, I've got, I've got a, I'd be amiss if I didn't say that our oldest partnership is with Catawba College. Yeah. The Land Trust and Catawba have worked together on land conservation. Um, your very own Catawba Preserve, mm-hmm. um, we helped you guys with that. We've got the, the Catawba Ecological Preserve that you guys own. We've also got the South Yaga Refuge where you guys do a ton of research and work on. Um, so it's an excellent partnership. Yeah so, so, yeah, so not only is there the Department of Environment and Sustainability at Catawba, but for much longer there's been the Center for the Environment right. at Catawba, which is not only the name of the building, but also the name of an institute within Catawba that's, that's led by uh, John Ware. He's the executive mm-hmm. director. He's a, he's a professor in the Department of Environment and Sustainability, but he's also the executive director of the Center for the Environment, which is acting as an institute within Catawba uh, that has been engaged in the community for 
decades. Yeah, and, decades. And the Ware family has been active in the in the region for literally generations. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and you can't get a better uh, um, head of steam up than than the impact of, of generations of effort and and decades of, of directed effort on the part of, of Dr. Ware. So so. Well, next week's right. episode is going to be with John Ware's uncle, uh, who was the director of uh, Fish and Wildlife. Awesome. Oh, yeah. So, well, you have to get to a class. I do. Yeah, I noticed Hannah was already getting her jacket on. <laughs> Hannah's getting her snack. She's saying, Dad, we got to go. So, I'm going to say thank you, and thank you to Hannah for putting up with us, um, for stealing your dad for a little bit. Uh, I want to have you back on when we got more time. Be delighted to. All right. All right, so we're back without Dr. Tyler. That was, he's interesting, man. Yeah, he had to step out. Uh, he had to go back to teaching his, uh, his day job. He's like a he's like an Indiana Jones character, except instead of archaeology, he's chasing down big cats. He's definitely a cross between Indiana Jones, Jim Shockey, and some kind of scientist type. Yeah, that's cool. Um, just, I, uh, I got a little story about the first time I met him. He signed up as a sports member, um, and like with some of our sports members, I get calls and excuses like right before the draw period. Where they're like, oh, sorry, I didn't get the draws in. Like, my bad. Let me get those in real quick, which is usually pretty frustrating. Um, but it's okay. It's just part of the deal. Um, but I got one from Dr. Dollar right before the draw. And I had actually reached out to him, sent him an email saying, like, you know, get your, you, you need to get those draws into me. And I got a call from this ridiculous number on my, <laughs> on my cell phone. And he's, I'm like, hello, who is this? And uh, he's like, this is, uh, this is Luke Dollar. Sorry, I didn't get those draws into you. I'm in Madagascar right now, uh, but let me just let's just do it over the phone right now. I thought that was so cool. I was, that's the only that's the best excuse I've ever gotten for a late for a late draw entry there. Yeah, he, uh, you can't, <laughs> can't tell a man no when he's when he's calling from calling from Africa, calling from Madagascar. I mean, wow, just uh, and we're gonna have him back. It's just with well, a fellow that's got so many irons in the fire. As Dr. Dollar, you've got to squeeze them in where you can get them. Even though we're only 10 minutes apart, we're neighbors and we talk all the time, he's, he's a busy man. So that's right. To get him in on a recording, you've just got to squeeze him in when you can. So that's that's what we did today, and we hope that uh, it was informational. Enjoyable. Uh, it was, I definitely learned from it. I so did too. The, yeah. the FUSA, look it up. It's this crazy lemur cat-looking thing, um, and... Dr. Dollar is probably the only person, he's definitely the only person I know, but he's probably the only person in the country that's put hands on him. I mean, one of few. Yeah, literally for sure. touched him, put radio collars on him, and I'll expand a little bit on it. You know, he wasn't just trapping them to look at them. He's trapping them, you know, radio telemetry, tracking these animals, see what they're doing, monitoring populations. He's doing all the things that a biologist and a scientist do in order to make sure that populations are remaining stable and like he said earlier that he's not studying up on a animal that's going to be extinct in five or yeah. ten years mm-hmm. so so that's what he was doing and same thing it just rolled right in from his from his puma work his uh you know his big cat work his cougar work in florida and how it's all tied into like policy i mean it's all connected and you know the research that they're getting is used to deal with that human animal conflict and interaction and try to come up with solutions that'll be good for people and good for wildlife so it all ties in together yeah and so that that brings up uh policy 
man, so we were talking about policy and law, and Sam and I were doing a little looking about policy and law last mm, week. Good. The, Dude, great like that segue, one? man. The White Bass wow. Run is on. And the only reason I'm even saying this now is because the secret is way out at this point. Don't even, don't say the river, though. I, I'm not going to say the river, but the secret's out. Yeah. Uh, all across North Carolina, White Bass Run is on. Yep. And for our buddies down in Texas, you call them sand bass down there. Yeah. But, but white bass, what we call them up here, and it's on. They're running. They're spawning. And you the run, the run. For those that don't know, and correct me if I'm wrong here, is a spawn run where they're leaving the lakes, coming up the rivers to to spawn. Just like salmon coming upstream to spawn, the same principle. Yeah. Um. The, these fish do the same thing, and now is a great time to catch pre-spawn white bass when they're at their most fit and pristine condition. So, and they're concentrated. Yeah, so some scientists, some wildlife biologists somewhere, this year decided, based off of data that they had accumulated, like Dr. Dollar. White that, bass are in decline. Okay, yeah. Let me touch on that. Mm-hmm, yeah, please. So white bass are in decline. And why are they in decline? Well, they're in decline because white perch are an invasive, believe it or not, stocked invasive. Yeah. But they have basically decimated white bass populations. The way they decimate them is they actually follow the white bass, eat the roe. Mm-hmm. Um, they follow them on the spawn. They spawn together, um, and white perch are just more prolific. And so white perch are definitely hurting the white bass population. And to a fisherman, you know, neither one of them are necessarily fish that are native and historically something you caught 200 years ago here in North Carolina. Yeah. Um, lake systems changed all that anyway mm-hmm. with the advent of stocking programs you know our idea of game fish is not what the native panfish of north carolina were yeah so anyways that being said white bass are very much sought after in north carolina and considered a very special thing for a lot of anglers um white perch maybe not so much um i'll say, I'll, I'll touch on that because i just ate go ahead yeah go yeah, ahead I you just, can firsthand account right here i just ate a handful of them White bass, two white bass, two white perch. I brought, I brought home. Uh, this I'm, I'm going to go ahead and do my hot tip. Okay, you can do my hot early. tip. My hot tip now uh, is eat your white bass before your white perch because they're better. In my <laughs> humble opinion, <laughs> you wouldn't recommend eating the worst. I know. I would. I mean, I'd recommend eating the the white perch. But I had a taste test where I cut up and filleted some white bass and filleted some white perch. And hands down, the white bass was better. Sure. But finding out which is which is, I think, where this conversation is going, right? Right. So, Moroni species, species um, white bass, white perch, striped bass. Mm-hmm. Um, and let me let me throw this at you, too. So, I'm sure most folks who are fishermen, especially if you're a striper fisherman, you, you realize that the hybrid striped bass, or the boaty bass, as we call it, um, is a cross between a striped bass and a white bass. Yeah. White perch don't fall into that mix. But the striped bass and the white bass are definitely excellent table fare. Mm-hmm. Um, so Sam was attesting to that. But let's talk about let's talk about this rule change. Yeah. So we talked about, you know, the white bass are in decline, but you know, folks are still fishing for them. They're not they're not extinct. They're not gonna go extinct. But they're definitely not going to be as prolific as they used to be. Um, and with that, a regulation 
change was put into effect that now there is a 14 inch size restriction. You can't keep any white bass under 14 inches. Mm -hmm. And you can only keep 10 per person per day. Mm -hmm. So there's a, a creel limit and a size limit. White perch, on the other hand, have neither of those. Mm -hmm. You can keep an unlimited amount of any size. But prior to this year, there was no restriction on size. This year or last year. Um, it's, it's definitely recent. Yeah. I, can't say, I can't say for sure when this was put into effect. But prior to this rule change, there was no limit or size restriction on white bass or white perch. So, yeah, I want you, because you've been doing this for a long time, I want you to touch on that. Yeah, so, well, there was, because there was no limit, there was no, there was no size restriction, I'll put it that way. Um, because there was no size restriction, this is, that's my big thing. Yeah. Because I don't think a whole lot of people are keeping more than 10 of anything on their own. Has there always been a 10 fish limit? Man, I can't even remember. Yeah. It's, you know, it's not something I kept up with. Yeah. But, because I never needed more than 10 yeah. of anything. Yeah, sure. <laughs> but, because I like eating fresh fish. I don't like having a freezer full of old fish. Yeah. But anyways, the deal is, you never really had to stare at these fish to tell them apart because you could keep the size limit. There was no size yeah, limit. Sure. So, and white perch typically don't get 14 inches anyways. Yeah. So that being said, now that there's a size limit, Sam and I took us a trip to catch some of these fish and got to looking and realized that the similarities between these two species are uncanny. It's, it's dang near impossible to tell them apart just at a glance. Um, now, I'm sure that some seasoned anglers out there are going to write in and say, well, I can tell them apart by this trick or that mm -hmm. trick. And I'm sure you've got a trick for doing it. But me being someone who doesn't catch these fish every day, all the time on the regular, and I don't target them except for one time a year. And I've taken ichthyology, but that was a long time ago. Yeah. I feel like I'm I'm pretty good at fish identification overall, better than your average person. But these fish are very similar. The only differences that we were able to come up with are there is a slight separation on the dorsal fins between the fin with the spikes on it and the fin with the rays. Mm -hmm. So there's like a, a like a millimeter, like a microscopic separation <laughs> yeah. between the two on a white bass. Yeah, no separation. On a white perch. Yeah. The other distinction is the tongue patch of teeth. So, on a white bass, it has a patch of teeth on the tip of its tongue. A white perch supposedly does not have this tongue patch. Dude, that was a. But but <sighs> yeah, you can reach in there and feel, and it's still yeah. It may be not. It's not visible, but there's still a a rough patch of teeth on the tongue so that, that's not a great we were, we were catching these fish and like rubbing their tongues and being like I'm pretty <laughs> the, I think that's the other thing is the lateral line the lateral line on a, on a white perch is always very distinct so the lateral line that runs from the back of the gill plate to the tail um, is is a very distinct identifier of a white perch but the thing is with white perch around here some of them will have stripes much like a striped bass or a white bass. Yeah. Um, white bass don't always, depending on what kind of stained water you're in, they sometimes don't have the stripes that they normally would have. Yeah. Um, the stripes are usually broken, um, which is a pretty good indicator. But it's it's a real hard thing to tell apart. And I've noticed seeing guys fishing off the bank and and they're just keeping stringer fulls of these fish, 
and I I know for a fact that they're not able to tell the difference because if I can't, there's no way that some of these <laughs> other guys are telling the difference. They're just not. They're they're just keeping undersized fish, yeah. and there's nothing you can do about it. And I'm not faulting them because I struggle to tell the difference. Mm-hmm. But that being said, if you want to go white bass fishing and you're in a place where the fishery also has white perch and you're wanting to keep both, at least be able to kind of tell the difference. Uh, and when you and when you get on Google and you like if you get on Google and you're like no I wanna see what I wanna see what they're talking about, one, there's no good information. <laughs> uh two, like the pictures on Google, some of them are not a good representation of the difference between these fish. Like some of them are going to have coloration differences and and stuff like that, and make them look like they're really like way different fish. That's not that's not true. Because yeah. we were pulling out. I mean, like if you held up two side by side and you were looking at them, it, you would not be. Able and to we see. had a couple that were for sure white bass over fourteen inches, and a couple that big, were for sure big perch. solid white bass, mm-hmm. and a couple that were for sure no doubt. Bet your life on it, perch. And then there was in the middle, and then there was one, these other ones 11, like, 12 inch fish that looked huh, maybe. Yeah, <laughs> yeah looked like both. So we, we, we went from big cats to talking about these perch but and these, these white bass. But the only reason I say that is because it's something that we learned this past week that I'd never thought much of before. Not, I don't know why. It's not very often that you get to go out and you know learn something new at you know our age and and. and be kind of dumbfounded. Yeah, not something that you've done your whole life. I mean, it's just, I don't know. I felt like an idiot. But it's just one of those things that they're hard to tell apart. If you're interested, the white bass was really good, man. Yeah. It was a tasty fish. Well, the secret's out now. I went I went back later to catch my own mess of white bass for the frying pan. And there were 20 boats on the river. And... In the hole, in the I, secret hole, in the well, it ain't no secret. Yeah, but in the hole that I liked fish, there were no less than eleven boats when I got there, and I managed to. Uh, I waited. I pulled one of these, man. I was a troller, and not a troller in the sense of fishing. I was a troller in the sense of internet type troll. Like I sat on the outskirts, sure, watching, mm-hmm. waiting. waiting, waiting for yeah. one guy to decide it was time to move. And when he moved from the spot I wanted, I jetted up in there, tied off to that spot. Yeah. I feel like that was an ethical thing to do. Nobody, I gave everybody that was in the hole a chance to move. I gave them a good minute. I saw nobody <laughs> making a move, so I made the move. Tied up in there. Well, pull up in the middle of all these boats, okay? Tied up in there. My first... Which is where we had been fishing the day before. Oh, yeah. We had already located these fish. We knew exactly where, where they were at. Mm-hmm. Funny thing was they weren't hitting the same baits, because um, I threw the same baits we were using. Go ahead and give them. Go ahead and give them two, the tips of the two things that we were using that we're catching. Okay. Okay. So hot, hot <laughs> information here. So what we were using the day we fished were yeah. were crappy minnows under a slip court three feet deep. Yeah, three or four. Sure. Three or four feet uh-huh. deep, um, and working it with the current and. It was there was no working it when we were fishing. It was like it hits the water, three, two, one, got him. Yeah, kind of deal. Well, Fun fight too. Oh, they fight great in the current. Yeah. But um, so when I went, they wouldn't have a minnow because I guess they'd been seeing them all day. I tied on a white one sixteenth rooster tail, 
and it was every cast. I mean, when I say every cast, I caught, I fished for an hour and caught 64 fish. <laughs> now, none of them were keepers. There was no fish over 14 inches. You said something that I've never heard you say before, which was, I grew a little bit tired of catching them. I did get tired. I got tired of it. Like, after number 30, I was like, this is getting dumb. I've not put a keeper in the boat yet. And I started experimenting with other lures and nothing else would work. And so I kept going back to this rooster tail and catching these short fish. But I guess the other guys in the hole who were not being as productive as me as far as reeling in fish every cast were not happy with my performance. They, they were pulling anchors and leaving. By the time I left, which I only fished for an hour, there were only three boats in the hole. <laughs> so, anyways, if, you, if you're going... This, here's another thing to say about how much Cody loves fishing. <laughs> so, earlier that day, it was Friday, we finished up <laughs> a burn that we'd been doing um, around 3 o'clock, 3.30, somewhere yeah. in there. And I had to head back to the office, and Cody said, I'm going I'm to head out and go catch some of these fish. Now, something happened to you during this burn... We're, yeah, you I'm in, still dealing with it. Yeah, you inhaled some noxious fumes or something, and were throwing up during yeah. the during the burn, right? Yeah, it wasn't something I was going to share, but now we're now that we're talking about <laughs> it, I uh, I don't know if we did a prescribed burn of a pine stand that a couple, and we're going to talk about this particular burn later on because we had Wake Forest doing atmospheric modeling during the burn to see the different effects on the atmosphere and assist prescribed burners in predicting fire outcomes and fire weather. But anyways, long story short is is I was working the baseline, which generally has the most smoke on it because yeah. you're fighting against the wind. You're putting in backing line. And it was two of us. It was just and us was two. Just yeah. us two. Sam was running the headline. I was running the, the baseline. And I was getting a lot of smoke. And a lot of heat on my side. And I don't know if there was something in that stand of trees that was noxious, that burned, that I breathed. Or if I just breathed too much smoke and maybe got a touch of carbon monoxide or what. But I, of all the burns I've been on, that's the first one I've ever gotten sick. And I was, I was physically very sick and stayed that way for two days. Don't know what it was. But anyways, I did go fishing afterwards. Yeah. But I only fished for an hour. And I'll tell you what. Before you came back, ghost white. Yeah, oh yeah. Throwing up the whole way And, and didn't think I was going to make it home. I had to call yeah. my wife um, and let her know that, hey, I'm probably going to have to have you come get me. <laughs> but the other thing about this this white bass, these couple excursions, I've lost, I'm down a life jacket and a jacket jacket. I lost. I didn't even tell you that. Mm-mm, you didn't tell me that. I lost a jacket. Jacket. My that my twenty five dollar Columbia fleece. I was so proud of. Oh, you're kidding. It's gone. That's a real bummer. I have no idea. I guess it blew out of my boat. I don't know where it's at. So uh, there's a there's a jacket eater on that boat on that river somewhere that's taking claim to now a life jacket and a jacket jacket. So if anybody's got a brand new black Columbia fleece, they want to shoot my way. I'm a I'm a size small. <laughs> Need that. You, gotta, you can wear one right now. You're fine. Man. This one was free. This was a uh, uh, this one's not as nice. Yeah. <laughs> what else, man? Um, <clears throat> what else? Were, were we gonna hit on? We're sitting at 55 minutes. You wanna you wanna go ahead and hit a hot tip? Man, I don't know that I have a hot tip today. Um, I think my hot tip was just telling those fish apart. 
What was my hot tip last week? Littering? Yeah, I think that capital punishment should be okay for litterers. I I guess people agree with it because I didn't get any comment saying that that's a bad call. So, that's good. (laughs) We should put that into motion. Um, There was something I wanted to talk about, but uh, maybe we'll save it for later. I don't have a... I don't have any hot tips today. Yeah, I'll do a second one. If you got two, hit it, man. Maybe I'll come up with one. Listen to our next episode. We're really, I'm really excited about um, yeah. Dr. Gene, um, who we're we're actually meeting with tomorrow, driving up to Raleigh. This is the first time we've actually driven somewhere. We're going on location for a yeah. uh, for a show. Um, he's a, just a really cool guy. I've been reading up about him. Um, and I'm excited to talk with him, and it's going to be a really cool episode with somebody who's um, been doing conservation work for 50-plus years, 60 years, and uh, on a national scale. So um, almost probably just as cool as this one. Dr. Dollar was really fun to talk to, and I'm looking forward to talking with Gene tomorrow. Exactly. Can't thank, can't thank our guests enough, and especially Dr. Dollar today, for coming in and, and talking to us about big cats. Yeah. So Until uh, next time. Yep. If you're like us, you're riding down the road listening to the podcast on your commute. When you get to where you're going, don't forget, like us on Facebook. Check us out at our website, threeriverslandtrust.org. There you can find out about all the events we're putting on, all the conservation work we're doing, how you can get involved, and how you can help. We'd love to meet like-minded individuals and get you involved in conservation. Till next time.